Well, good morning, everybody. It's fantastic uh, to be here, particularly uh, with such an international crew to talk to. Um, and I'm sure some of you know the story of the, um, the foreign ministry, which um, one of the great capitals of the world, which wrote round in the in December time, in the run-up to Christmas, to all the embassies in town to ask the ambassadors what they'd like for Christmas. And they got a whole lot of replies back, as you'd expect, this foreign ministry. And the, the US ambassador, US, yes, uh, said, well, we'd like uh, peace in the Middle East and a more stable financial world system, please. Uh, and the French ambassador said, uh, what we'd really like is an end to world poverty and greater, faster development in Africa. And the German ambassador said, prosperity for all and an open system of trade. Yeah. And, the, and the British ambassador said, oh, it's very kind of you to ask, but please don't put yourself to any trouble. <laughs> uh, a, a box of chocolate mints would be fine. <laughs> uh, now, I, I'm telling this story not just because it's quite a good story, but because it, it relates to an episode in my time as uh, uh, working with Paddy Ashdown as his, as his speechwriter and as a member of his speech team, because we knew uh, that one of the issues we had was how do you start his speeches? And it had become a sort of block with him. He, he didn't feel they were, they were going right. You, know, you could either just plunge in, get straight into the policy <laughs> substance, cut to the chase. Um, but audiences don't sort of expect that. They, they weren't expecting that. And, and it didn't make him feel comfortable. What he wanted was something which would, as it were, help him to relax and help his audience to relax as well, because by and large, his audience wanted him to do well, and they wanted to see him relax. So uh, we sat around uh, discussing this. And one of our team, who was um, a guy called Jeremy Bournemouth, who was, you know, you may know of him in this country, great uh, guru in the advertising world. Uh, so he was on the team, fantastic he was on the team. And he said, look, I think I, think I know the sort of thing that you need to do, Paddy. Um, you need something which is a bit humorous, uh, which tells a story, and uh, which also sets up the main theme and content of the speech that helps introduces people to the argument you're going to be making. He said, I'll send you something. I'll send you something. Uh, now, now, this won't be it. This won't be it, but it's the sort of thing you might think of using to introduce your speeches. So, you'll guess what happened next. Arrives in Paddy's inbox, though I think in those days it's probably his, on his fax machine, <laughs> uh, there arrives this story about the foreign ministry and the ambassadors and the chocolate mints. Paddy loves it. This is fantastic. It, it, it says so much about the self-deprecating British character, <laughs> our attitude to international affairs, our, our distrust of lofty global goals. Um, I love it. I'll use it. And the covering note, which explained on no account was this story to be used, uh, was simply ignored, probably not read. And so much to Jeremy's surprise at the next party conference, opening of the speech, there's this story about the ambassadors uh, and the chocolate mints. 
which is then followed by a detailed exposition of the party's new policy on housing. <laughs> so, uh, starting speeches is quite difficult. Uh, the communication between the speech maker and the speech writer can be uh, quite difficult. Uh, for as part of my research for this uh, I mean, background, I looked at the Guild's website and uh, discovered that Paddy himself had done a, done a session down, down in London uh, where he talked about his own experience and his own approach to making speeches. And, it, and it's worth looking at because for, he spent a lot of time subsequently to when I was working for him in Bosnia where he was the high representative and he talked very interestingly about the challenges of making a uh, a speech which then has to be translated into somebody else's language. But he, he talks about that. And, and I've got the quote from the, from the write-up. He told us, this is to illustrate the, the, the tricks that the memory can play, he told us he preferred to write the first draft himself. <laughs> so the ideas of the sentences came from him. Well, this is complete nonsense. <laughs> 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 this is absolutely rubbish. But you know, if, if speech makers want to believe these things, uh, then that's fine. That's fine. And that's part of the deal, I, I suppose, that speech writers have to uh, put up with. And, and the third point, uh, by way of introduction, is I think, that, I think there's a session coming up on this later. The relationship between politicians and humour can be very tenuous <laughs> and to be approached with care. Um, you'll all remember Margaret Thatcher. She was, the, um, uh, uh, she was encouraged uh, in 1990, this was, to make a speech which included a reference uh, to the famous dead parrot sketch of John Cleese. And this was because my party had just launched a new logo uh, which had the, what we called the Bird of Liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, and she and her speech people saw, saw an opportunity uh, with this. Uh, so she was encouraged, she was scripted, and she was encouraged to say some of the lines from this, this fantastic, memorable, uh, crazy uh, sketch. She was rather dubious about this, but she was persuaded to do it. Except there's this moment of panic, just as she was going on stage, where she turns to her aide and said, uh, John, this Monty Python... Is he one of us? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it, um, not to hark on it, but, but when, when Jim Callaghan, Prime Minister in the 70s, uh, was compared to Moses at one point, you know, bringing his people into the Promised Land, uh, uh, the line was written for her speech. You know, OK, Jim, keep taking the tablets. <laughs> tablets, Ten Commandments, all that. She crossed it out. Yeah, but came out as keep taking the pills. <laughs> so, um, one of the joys of working uh, for Paddy was, uh, and this is something to do with the military background, I think, the discipline and the willingness to learn. And that was a great <coughs> positive uh, for me. When he started, the first time I saw him speak was in 1978-ish, before he was an MP. And rather reflecting his, his military background, he'd been in the Marines, he'd been in the Special Boat Service, um, he knew how to talk to men. It was a somewhat staccato, even barking, barking in the sense of um, giving orders rather than 
being a bit mad, uh, of style of, of speaking, and often difficult to follow. By the time you finished, I think everybody agrees, uh, a much more authoritative, calm, persuasive uh, speaker. Um, now, the advantage of, for us is leading the third party, you get more time to establish your own style. I think one of the problems of politicians now is that first impressions count disproportionately. Um, and if you look at the history of some of our recent leaders, political leaders in this country, uh, people have made up their minds within three months, six months, about them, about their qualities. And once the public's made up their mind, it's almost impossible to shift that opinion. Being slightly less profile in those days, we had more time uh, to do it. And he was able to stake out a lot of ground on many of the big issues that came around, like Hong Kong, Bosnia, uh, the first Gulf War, and then had this great opportunity for a, a newish political leader of a general election, where often you're introducing yourself to the public for the, for the first time. For us, I think, uh, it was the love of words, and I think a certain love of music, which helped us work together on all his speeches. Um, Polonius uh, says to Hamlet, what, what do you read, my lord? And Hamlet says, words, words, words. And words are, when you're in opposition, words are all you've got. They are your currency. They're your weapon. Not just the weapon of choice, but the weapon of, of necessity. And words have to be treasured and valued and used uh, wisely. One place where that is very exposed is uh, Prime Minister's questions. We have a, a ritual in this country where uh, the Prime Minister is asked questions by the leaders of the other parties. Um, it's very important when you ask a question not to ask a question if you don't know what the answer is going to be. Um, it's very important to try and phrase it in a way which puts the Prime Minister on the defensive, giving them unpalatable choices. Can the Prime Minister say whether his government is incompetent or dishonest? <laughs> that, sort of, that sort of question. Um, and increasingly also to have something in, that, in the question which is going to be a hook, a, 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 be, be usable by the broadcasters. Because since Parliament was, was broadcast, since it was televised, the biggest point of all these exchanges is to get something onto the, onto the news. Um, one example of that, and this again relates to Mrs Thatcher, in her climactic days as Prime Minister, you may re recall she was challenged for the leadership in 1990. Uh, she faced a ballot of her MPs and at that very moment had to go to a conference in Paris where great events about the future security of Europe were being uh, decided and a great treaty was signed and, and so on. Um, the ballot took place, she didn't get enough, quite enough votes, she came back, she had to report to the House of Commons uh, without having resolved in her own mind whether she was going to fight on for the leadership or whether she was going to stand down. Very dramatic uh, moment. We had a question all written to ask about the European situation, about security in Europe, the, state, the position of the Baltic states, all that sort of stuff. But it, it just didn't lack, it lacked the cut through which I felt it needed. I just put in a phrase into the question that said, can the Prime Minister reflect in the twilight days of her premiership? <laughs> and the place went wild, went mad. Lots of cheering from our side, lots of protests from the Tory side. 
And by the time I was back in the office, the phrase Twilight Days was leading the BBC CFAX News on the television. And that's the power of the phrase of, of words. <coughs> Two thoughts I just thought I'd lobby in about politicians' speeches. The first is I think they have to contain an argument. They have to be about persuading people to a point of view. Um, so many speeches you hear are simply a list of assertions, uh, often with no verbs in them, by the way. <laughs> uh, just list after list of things which are said to be true, but no attempt made either to evidence it or to argue why it is, why it is true. Um, the best speeches do more than that. They take on an opposing point of view, they acknowledge an opposing point of view, and they argue people around uh, from it. And second, I think the best leaders use their speeches not just to tell people what they think their audiences want to hear, but to challenge and to push uh, their audiences. <coughs> Otherwise, it's a missed opportunity. Why, why are we making speeches if we just want to confirm for audiences what they already think they believe? Uh, and sometimes it, it is about telling people unpalatable facts of life. Um, by the way, in this election, you haven't heard yet a single politician tell the voters a single unpalatable fact of life about the state of the country. Um, but the best ones can do that, and best of all, they can do it in a way which, however reluctantly, brings their audiences uh, along with them. Tony Blair did it uh, when he persuaded his party to drop its historic constitutional clause 4 thing, which is all about the founding principles of its, its party. And he did it by saying, as a party, we should say what we mean and mean what we say. And that gave him permission in the speech to then do exactly that. Um, and he did it very effectively. Paddy did it when he persuaded his party to support the first Gulf War back in 1990-91. Although, looking back, everybody thinks that, that wasn't controversial. At the time, it was very controversial about whether uh, there should be an international coalition to get Saddam out of Kuwait and so on. Um, and that argument had to be made with the party. And also, uh, to persuade the party in the run-up to the 1997 election to abandon, oh, this is going to sound very parochial, um, to abandon what we call equidistance, which was the doctrine that we were somehow equidistant from the two other parties. This was about moving the party to a new position. A lot of suspicion about it. The argument had to be made, and people won uh, round. So, um, on to the general election. And when we talked, first off, it, I had hoped, I, I was hoping that we'd be able to talk to you about a dynamic, exciting, uh, <laughs> lively campaign full of uh, policy announcements, brilliant rhetoric, passionate argument. All you need to know about the British general election of 2015 is that last week, the lead item on the BBC Radio News was about the death of an 84-year-old cricket commentator from Australia. He <laughs> <laughs> wasn't even British. Uh, the great, uh, great Richard Benner was a great man, great communicator, but I don't think he should have been the lead item. It's a re reflection on the campaign that, that he dominated uh, a day of our news uh, cycle. What have we seen so far? Speeches actually are, are few and far between in the sense that I think of speeches. Now, you get people doing... Uh, uh, short presentations 
to a group, a small group of enthusiastic supporters for the cameras. Um, these are stage events with the party faithful, uh, uh, where a script is read out. And boy, what scripts! Um, David Cameron launched his manifesto this week. He, his, his rallying call, his final call to arms was, let's not go back to square one. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, well, that's going to motivate people out to the, uh, out to the ballot box. Um, and most of this, my friends, is designed actually to avoid the dynamics and the pressures of a proper press conference because uh, the leaders do not want to be interrogated too much by the, by the press pack. But speeches can count. Um, I just want to draw your attention to two uh, in the last few months. Uh, one was actually before Parliament rose. It was about, an, again, an arcane issue about whether our Speaker, who chairs the House of Commons, should be elected by secret ballot or by open ballot of MPs. The issue was actually, do you support the Speaker or not? But it was disguised in this way. And the government wanted to push this through on the last day of Parliament. The guy who chairs the Procedure Committee, who's a government side MP, uh, felt particularly strongly that this was being done in, a wrong, in the wrong way, in an underhand way. And he made this brilliant, brilliant speech in the House of Commons. I'll, I'll just read you how he, how he summed up. I, he said, have been played as a fool. When I go home tonight, I will look in the mirror and see an honourable fool looking at me. I would much rather be an honourable fool in this and any other matter than a clever man. He said, looking directly at the government ministers on the front bench. And you can see the whole authority of the government draining away, and they lost the vote substantially because of that one short uh, intervention. And quite without precedent, he got a, sta you know, a standing ovation and applause uh, in the House of Commons. Second one was actually in, in the campaign itself. Uh, and was a deliberate single intervention by the aforementioned Tony Blair, who decided to, that he had to do something uh, in, in this campaign and decided to make a speech. He wasn't going to do an interview, uh, either in the papers or broadcast, he was going to do a speech, and he was going to do it properly. And it was carefully constructed, and it rose way above the rather uh, prosaic debate we're having about should you spend $8 billion or $7 billion on the health service, what should you do about uh, other, other public services. Deliberately calm, uh, and whether you agree or, or not, it repays study because it's a very effective presentation, very artful. Because one of the things we had to do was find a way of endorsing Ed Miliband, who's the Labour Party's candidate for Prime Minister, where everybody knows that Tony Blair disagrees with Ed Miliband about almost everything. So he chose, he chose to make it about the issue of Europe, which is the one area where they can very successfully agree. And he, uh, I'll just read out two passages, two short passages. The Prime Minister doesn't really believe we should leave Europe, not even the Europe as it is today. This was a concession to party, a manoeuvre to access some of the UKIP vote, a sop to the rampant anti-Europe feeling of parts of the media. So immediately he's, he's taken a moral high ground against uh, the Prime Minister. This issue, touching as it does, the country's future is too important to be traded like this. It is greatly to Ed Miliband's credit that he resolutely, resolutely refused to make that trade. He faced down calls to follow the Tory concession from parts of the media and many inside our party. In doing so, he showed real leadership. 
He showed that he would put the interests of the country first. He showed that this, on this, as on other issues, brackets, I can't think of any, he, he is his own man with his own convictions and determined to follow them even where they go against the tide. I respect that. Now, that's, that's the, the biggest endorsement you're going to get out of Tony Blair for Miliband, but that's, that's uh, uh, well done. And, and, and later on in the speech, he turns the Tory notion that a vote for Labour would result in chaos uh, into one where he's saying a Tory campaign to get us out of Europe would be a greater chaos. So, very artful. Now, what about business? Um, so, what's my experience of people in business? What do they do? Um, now, some of them, of course, make brilliant speeches. A few of them make brilliant speeches. But most of them don't make speeches. They deliver presentations. And typically, they do this with a slide deck. Where's my deck? Have I got a deck? Um, uh, and what do they do? They put up slides. Uh, this is a recent one from uh, our own AGM at the Management <laughs> Center. Uh, they then say, oh, I'm very sorry. Um, you probably won't be able to read this. <laughs> the, the writing's a bit small. Um, but never mind. They then turn away from their audience in order to read themselves what, what's, what's on the slide because they ask the person presenting their presentation to prepare some slides, not to prepare a presentation, but to prepare some slides. And then they read out bits of, of what it says. And then they get disheartened because they realise that they've only got five minutes left and there are 17 more slides uh, uh, to do. Uh, I, I could talk a bit more about uh, how we try and help business people to do better. One anecdote, when, when Philip Clark took over at, uh, and these things matter, when Philip Clark took over at Tesco's from Terry Leahy, he gave a speech to the, to the staff, as, as new chief executives do. And somebody who was there told me he didn't use the word we once. I, 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 I. And they knew immediately that he wouldn't last. Um, but there is a major, major opportunity for people in the speech writing business with business, uh, I think. Uh, business is coming under much more scrutiny, the sort of scrutiny which politics is used to. Markets are demanding it. Parliament is increasingly putting business under scrutiny. They appear before select committees to justify themselves uh, about how they run their companies. The press is doing so. And we will require more and more sure-footed, good communicators in CEO positions and other leadership positions uh, in business. They have to be confident about what they stand for both as people and what their firms uh, stand for as well and able to articulate it very well. The one thing which anybody can remember in this country that a businessman has said in the last six or so years was when Bob Diamond went before a Treasury Secretary uh, and asked to talk about the banking crisis. This was about 2011, I think said, Mr Chairman, I think the time for remorse is over. And that, within a few months, his career at Buffett uh, was over. Uh, and uh, that tells you something about the power of words and the power of speech in business. Thank you very much.